Hey there, I'm Catalina Villegas. I'm the host of Rolly's Experts Explain Everything podcast. Rolly is the platform where journalists find experts for their stories. It is created by journalists and for journalists. And as a journalist myself, I love to find fascinating people on Rolly. Experts with so much knowledge and insight, and yet it rarely makes it past the headlines. So I'm bringing on one of those experts to answer all of the burning questions I've ever had about their field. Today, I'm chatting with Arturo Porsekansky. He is an economist and research fellow at American University. He spent three decades on Wall Street as an economist and nearly two in academia as a professor specializing in international financial issues. Arturo, thank you so much for coming on. My great pleasure. Arturo, okay, so I want to get right to this because we know that we heard the news in August. U.S. inflation rose 8.3%. So let's get to it. What is inflation and how do how can we tell, how do we know when we're experiencing it? Yes, well, um, it, it's inflation is a general and sustained rise in the level of most prices for goods and services. In other words, when there is no inflation, you know, maybe one week uh, gasoline prices might be up and tomato prices might be down, but that's not inflation. That's just a normal economy where some prices go up uh, because of supply and demand or they go down because of supply and demand. But when you see that 60, 70, 80, 90 percent of prices for goods and services is going up, that's how you know there is inflation. Okay, so what I'd love to know is why are so many countries around the world experiencing this surge in inflation? Is it all or at least mostly the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine or was the pandemic more of a factor? Yes, the pandemic and post-pandemic policies were the biggest factor. First, the facts. In the decade through 2020, in the nearly 40 countries that are members of the OECD, so it's all of Europe, North America, the leading countries of Asia, and a number of large developing countries. For for these, this set of nearly 40 countries, inflation averaged less than 2% through the end of 2020. Uh, but then it rose to 4% uh, in 2021. Then by the start of the, even even before the, the invasion, February of 2022, it was up to seven and three quarters percent. And in uh, June, July, August, year on year inflation for this group of nearly 40 countries has been around 10 and a quarter percent. So to go from less than 2% to seven and three quarters percent before the invasion uh, occurred means, right, that the momentum of inflation uh, was in place already. The invasion just uh, made it a bit worse, uh, but uh, there were fundamental forces that were unleashed beforehand. What was it about the pandemic, you think, that caused it? We, We saw that, for example, I remember we all got stimulus checks, you know, and now I see a lot of people saying, well, it was those stimulus checks, or was it also that supply chains were disrupted in such a big way? So inflation is almost always a monetary phenomenon. Namely, if monetary policies are very loose, 
as evidenced by very low interest rates, then that is the kind of uh, broth that can produce uh, inflation. Uh, and we definitely had very loose monetary policies, very low interest rates for many years into and through the pandemic. On top of that, we had very loose fiscal policies because virtually every government on the planet uh, spent more, whether on vaccines or healthcare or income support uh, payments or else experienced a decline in revenues uh, such that they ran much larger deficits than they intended to run or uh, much smaller surpluses than they would otherwise have run. And so the fact that most governments had, if you will, uh, both feet on the accelerator uh, of, of fiscal and monetary policy that definitely contributed to augmenting the effect of supply chain disruptions and other things that happened that contributed to the start of this inflationary wave. Okay, so let's go to the basics really quick. How is inflation measured and what are the pros and cons of one measure over maybe a different type of measure? Yes, so um, the, the general reference is to the consumer price index, although there are other uh, indices, for example, of the, uh, in, there are indices of uh, prices at the wholesale level, level, namely basically what factories uh, use. So uh, a producer price index would include, you know, steel, copper, wood, right, raw materials for production, whereas the typical consumer price index, which is the one that's quoted the most, uh, mainly measures the cost of food and beverages, apparel, housing, transportation, medical care, recreation, education, and things like that that a consumer normally would spend. And these items are weighted according to surveys that are periodically updated. So, for instance, the cost of housing might be pegged at 40% of a person's total budget um, uh, one year. But then over the years, if the cost of housing goes down, then it might housing might only be given a weight of, say, 35% instead of 40 In poorer countries, uh, the weight of food uh, is very important. In richer countries, it's less important. So it's all about the weights. And uh, the idea is to capture what the average person is experiencing. But obviously, you might not be the average, right? Is if you own your housing and you bought it a long time ago, uh, you're not way, you're not probably not spending forty or thirty-five percent of your budget on housing costs. You're lucky. But um, if you're a millennial and you're trying to rent now or to buy now, you might spend more than forty percent of your budget on housing. So it doesn't represent everyone, but it represents the average person. I know that a lot of people are really scared about inflation, um, but is inflation always a bad thing? Or are there rates that have proven to be economically or socially tolerable and maybe beneficial in some ways? Right. So uh, economic research uh, gives us an answer, and it is that 
as long as inflation is not an important factor in the decision-making of consumers, producers, and others in the economy, then it's okay. And experience tends to show that as long as inflation is minimal, say anywhere between zero and 2%, it's not a factor that's taken into consideration. You know, whether you're going to go to school or you're not going to go to school, if you're going to open a a new business or you're not, if you're going to expand the factory or you're not. So uh, in general, inflation between zero and 2% is, let's say, negligible because it doesn't uh, affect people's behavior. But once you're talking about three, four, five, six, and so on, people start to notice, right, that their purchasing power uh, is diminished unless they're given a compensating raise in their salary or in other income streams. So um, that's why really uh, almost no uh, government that I know of has zero inflation as the target. They usually have less than three or less than two as the target. I know that here in the U.S. we're feeling the effects of inflation a lot. We, you know, August was 8.3%, but in a lot of places around the world, they are suffering from much, much higher rates of inflation, like hyperinflation. I'm thinking of Venezuela and Zimbabwe. Their inflation has been measured in like thousands and hundreds of thousands a year. Or even Argentina or Turkey that are facing inflation rates between 50 and 100%. What can we learn from these countries and what is the impact on um, the residents there? Well, uh, what we can learn uh, from the hyperinflation cases now or during the 20th century or in, or in earlier centuries is that you want to avoid them like the plague because uh, talking about the importance of inflation in decision-making, you can imagine, right, if you're losing purchasing power at that rapid rate because prices are doubling every month or every week, uh, then you become obsessed with that. You stop uh, investing. You stop producing. You stop. You, you're just, you know, chasing uh, goods before their price goes up. So people insist on being paid every day, and then they run to the store to to buy things. And right, it's really a survival uh, experience. So definitely, you want to avoid hyperinflations, and hyperinflations always end because either governments are toppled and new, more competent governments are put in place, or else people stop using the currency that is is losing value so quickly, and they switch to holding gold or silver, or in more recent experience, dollars or euros, which maintain their purchasing power. With regard to the countries with uh, in-between inflation, say 50 to 100%, there, the destructive power of inflation depends on what defense mechanisms are available. For example, in a number of countries, you can uh, write contracts in the local currency or in something durable like dollars or euros or, or some other standard of value. Uh, in that case, uh, your salary will be automatically increased to keep up with the inflation, your rent payments too. Uh, and so that's a way that uh, certain societies have uh, developed or, uh, or 
legislation has allowed people to protect themselves. So this process that we call indexation, whether it's indexation to the uh, cost of living or indexation to a strong currency like the dollar or something like that, is one way that societies have found to handle uh, and, and reduce the distortions from and the uncertainty created by inf two-digit inflation. The irony of some of this strikes me as just remarkable. For a long time, Venezuela's presidents, Chavez and Maduro, they saw the U.S. as their enemy. Chavez even referred to President Bush at one time as the devil. And yet Venezuelan residents adopted the dollar to get inflation under control in their country. It's just something else. Okay, but let's say that the situation isn't as bad as Venezuela or even Turkey. And so you aren't going to abandon your currency or you're not going to topple the government. In that case, how can government officials work to bring inflation down? Well, the, the way to deal with inflation, whether it's in single digits, never mind in double or triple or quadruple digits, is of course to deal with the roots of it. And in particular, the monetary and fiscal roots of it. And that's uh, what you uh, are beginning to experience in the United States and in many countries. Central banks are tightening monetary policy. Uh, governments are curtailing big spending programs that they put in place during the pandemic. Uh, and they're experiencing a recovery in their tax base uh, because economies now are functioning again, maybe not 100%, but 80% or 70% of what they were before. So uh, a correction in fiscal and monetary policies from overly loose to tight um, is the way you deal with inflation, no matter at, at what rate it's going. If you don't do that, then people will find ways and a lot of societal energy will be spent on you know, getting compensating raises for which you might have to stage a strike or uh, moving from uh, one property to another or staying in one place that you don't want to stay in simply because you're protected uh, by a certain uh, contract, uh, rental contract that you've signed. So uh, ironically, uh, single digit inflation can, can, can lead to a lot of distortions in the economy that, as I say, societies that have had higher inflation for a while, not extremely high, but two-digit inflation, they already have ways to update contracts, update prices, and minimize the distortions. But ironically, it's countries, including the United States, that where there's a whole generation of people who never had to worry about inflation before. Uh, it's in these societies that you can have the greatest discouragement to investment and to new business from the fact that, you know, now you have something to worry about that you didn't have to worry about before. It's so very interesting. Um, and I think that's probably also why right now we're hearing a lot about maybe a looming recession um, in the year ahead or so, because this is something that we really haven't experienced for decades. When we're talking about solutions, we've also heard or I've also heard public officials say that they want to maybe offer some 
gas tax relief incentives and other types of subsidies to hard hit consumers because this is a regressive tax. What do you think of these policies? Could they exacerbate the inflation problem? Uh, so, um, if uh, the cure to an inflationary problem is to tighten fiscal and monetary policies, obviously every additional subsidy that the government gives or tax break that it gives works against the purpose, right? You have to then uh, tighten the screws someplace else in the fiscal accounts or in the monetary accounts. But it's understandable that uh, a number of governments, and we're seeing that whether in developing countries or in Europe or elsewhere, they are uh, offering some uh, tax or other relief to hard-hit consumers. But the key is that those things be temporary. Uh, and unfortunately, what happens oftentimes is, you know, once you give something, uh, then you create a whole um, industry of keeping it, right? Uh, uh, um, many of the subsidies and the tax breaks that we have started a long time ago as supposedly temporary relief, but they became permanent. So if it's temporary, I guess it's okay. Uh, especially if uh, there are other things that governments are doing to fund, to underwrite uh, that expense of a subsidy or, or of a tax break. But the idea, the best thing is really to convince society as a whole that it behooves us all to be rowing in the same direction. Uh, say that uh, people continue bidding up the, the price of housing even as uh, mortgage rates go up. Well, that's not good because then you're going to have to have the central bank restricting the money supply much more until people actually stop bidding up uh, housing, right? But if we see and we're beginning to see uh, housing prices ease and people, uh, you know, and that, that housing bubble deflating, that's good news. That means that even the medicine, the bitter medicine that is being dispensed now is beginning to work in the United States and a number of other countries. So let's hope that people are sensible. And instead of looking for relief from inflation, they agree to um, that you know measures have to be taken uh, to deal with the root causes so that a year or two from now, we go back to not worrying about inflation anymore. Well, I sure hope so. You know, we also hear quite a lot when we're talking about inflation, we hear a lot of these words that we don't really understand what they mean. Can you tell us what exactly is deflation? What is stagflation? Are these problematic as well? Is this something we need to keep our eye on? So definitely, uh, they are problematic. Uh, deflation is the opposite of inflation. I mentioned it before. A number of countries, a number of years, uh, they had less than zero inflation. They had minus one, minus two, minus three. Uh, and you don't want to do that either, because that also uh, discourages uh, investment and, and, and businesses uh, and affects decisions. As I mentioned before, what you want is an inflation rate that is so minimal, you know, plus one or minus one at most, uh, or maybe plus two, but that, that people don't take it into consideration. 
But when uh, consumers and businesses see prices falling and not falling for a month or falling for a year, but falling for several years, that tends to uh, uh, injure the business and investment climate because people start to say like, well, then, you know, whatever profit I make after taking risks and setting things up and so on, you know, might, uh, might be coming down, not because of my fault, but because of uh, a general reduction in the level of prices. So de deflation is, is, is not a good thing. And, and when they were having deflation, many governments tried not to have it or tried to put a floor on it and, and to get back to, you know, a zero to two uh, positive uh, range. Stagflation is the combination of usually inflation with a stagnant economy. And you can see why that would be also not undesirable, right? Because you have the inflation and, and, and the economy is not growing. So as long as that happens for a few months, so for example, say that uh, fiscal and monetary policy in many countries turns restrictive. And as a result of that, all kinds of asset bubbles are deflated, housing, stocks, bonds, um, and also uh, companies don't hire as much as they were doing before or start to laying start laying off some people for a few months it would be actually natural that you have some stagflation in other words that you still have some lingering inflation and the economy is either stagnant or is experiencing a shallow recession so as long as stagflation doesn't last more than a year, it's part of the cure, if you will. <laughs> it's part of the process. But uh, the stagflation that uh, has uh, gotten a bad name is the one that lasts for many years. And that often is the result of inconsistent policies. It's, it's when governments, you know, first press the accelerator for too long on fiscal and monetary policies, then press on the brake for too long, and, you know, if they don't get the timing and the degree right, you can get stagflation for many years. And that's definitely a problem. That definitely sounds like it would be a problem. Arturo, thank you so much for your time and for all that insight. My great pleasure. You can learn a lot more about Arturo by visiting his website, arturo.porsekansky.com. And you can find hundreds of other exceptional experts at rollyapp.com. I'm Catalina Villegas, and you can always connect with me on social media at Catalina Official, O-F-F-C-L, on Twitter, IG, or Facebook. Until next time. <laughs>